Today, with uh, this text from Revelation 22, beginning of verse 6, we come to the epilogue of the book. And having worked through the book has convinced me of its necessity, really. It's, it's an indispensable book in many ways, especially in rightly ordering and shaping the Christian life. And there's a great divine wisdom that I've come to appreciate anyway in, in it being the capstone of the canon, the place where all the texts converge. I mean, without, without this book, without the book of Revelation, a good deal of Old Testament prophecy and the New Testament letters, not to mention New Testament prophecy, simply left dangling. Without the book of Revelation, the nature of the church's witness in the world, what it means to be witnesses, and really the forces that are arrayed against us, would not come to full expression. Right? Without the book of Revelation, the vision of the church's hope would be shrunk down. It would be diminished. Without the book of Revelation, we have no link from the epistles to the first century churches to the end, to the new heavens and the new earth and the coming glory. So the book is of indispensable value to the church. Something that I think is probably not obvious at the beginning of an exploration of the book, but becomes clear by the end. And what we have here in this epilogue is a loose series of exhortations. In one sense, the climax of the book was the last two weeks. What we have here is a sort of set of footnotes. But this reminds us of something that I think is important. A book like this, with all of this complicated apocalyptic imagery ends with a string of exhortations, which remind us of the importance of an urgent, practical, concrete response to the book. And so we'll look at the text under the two headings. They're there on the back inside page of your bulletin. Exhortations, of which there are six, and a benediction. So no, this is not a sneaky way of having a seven-point sermon that looks like a two-point sermon. But there are six exhortations. The first exhortation begins in verse 6. The angel says to John, these words are trustworthy and true. Do you know something like this? Something about the, the, uh, the truthfulness, the reliability, the certainty of the word of God and the words of John the prophet has been expressed seven times in the last two chapters of the book. So among its many benefits, Revelation is a book about the centrality and the sufficiency and the certainty and the authority and the clarity of the word and the words of God. And here it's spoken to assure you, to assure you, God takes oaths, if you will. He reminds us these words are true. He doesn't have to. His word is intrinsically the truth. But we're weak and frail. So God comes and gives us other bonds, if you will, to assure us. In a sense, that's what the sacrament is. It's another bond that seals us to Christ. 
This is spoken to assure you that the words of this book are true and that the coming of the new creation is certain. The coming of the new creation is certain, as is the destruction of all evil kingdoms that oppose the church. And that is the essence of what the church needs to be a confident and joyful people in the midst of the tribulation. These words also, as trustworthy and true, they pick up one of the great themes of this book, that of witness. One of the great themes. Revelation is testimony. Remember the book starts and says the revelation or the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And he is the faithful witness par excellence. And you're called in this book to participate in his witness to the nations in the earth. That's what the Christian life is. It's a participation in Jesus' own witness-bearing activity in the earth. It's not like Jesus bears witness and says, now you go and bear witness. And our witness is a second sort of discrete, different thing. He bears witness and says, you're in me. You're united to me. Now you bear witness in and through and by means of my faithful witness. And so this is why throughout the book, resisting, And unmasking the false claims of Satan's agents, of Babylon, of the beast, of the propaganda machine that is the false prophet. By speaking and by living the truth, this is the overwhelming passion of the book. It's a resistance document, Revelation. It's a political tract and the greatest, the most ancient political tract in the history of the Christian church. And so this opening verse continues. The Lord, the God... Of the spirits of the prophets. The force of this phrase is that God is the one who inspires the prophets and the prophetic church. That's the Lord God who is the God of the spirits of the prophets. That spirit rests upon you. That spirit empowers you to be a prophetic witness. And that spirit empowered John the prophet. That Lord sent his angel to show his servants, the text says, what must soon take place. The opening of the book said this, and the closing of the book, they both declare that the content of what's in the book is soon to take place. Now we'll say a bit about this today. This is taking up the perspective of Old Testament prophecy, especially the book of Daniel. Daniel saw these visions of an end-time beast-like kingdom. This beast-like kingdom would oppress the saints. And Daniel sees its destruction. And he sees the establishment of this everlasting, indestructible kingdom of God. And those events, those events far off, far off for Daniel, have been set in motion. Right? They're now impinging on the church, indeed on the churches in Asia Minor. They're already in the throes of these events. And the capstone of all those events is the second coming of Christ. That is seen in verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon. That is repeated, as I said, it's mentioned in the opening of the book in chapter 1. Behold, I am coming soon. It's repeated in this epilogue, you may have heard it, three times in chapter 22. 
So Jesus, who has appeared, who has come, and he continues to come in history. He comes by word and spirit, by word and sacrament. He comes for judgment and for blessing. But the accent here is on his consummate coming at the end of the age. So, there's a very important thing, I think, to get clear here. How is it, if his coming is soon, that he has not yet come? Some people solve this problem by saying the book is about events that took place in 70 A.D., But we should be clear about this. Jesus says, I am coming soon in chapter 1. And then he says, I am coming soon three times in chapter 22. All of the book is to occur soon. And that includes the final judgment, the destruction of Satan, the lake of fire, the new heavens and the new earth. One does not get to say, well, just the first 10 or 11 or 12 chapters happen soon. After all is said and done, at the end of the book, three times, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. So an interpretation here needs to give an account of how events which have been delayed for 2,000 years and which may be stretched out in front of us for who knows how long are soon. Now we've done this before. But it's important to get this. The coming is always soon because the end has already come in Christ. The coming of Jesus is always soon after his appearance and resurrection. After his ascension in Pentecost, there are no major redemptive events left in the program of God except his coming at the end of the age. And so the coming of Christ in a text like this, is not strictly a chronological calendar matter. It is always soon because it has already begun. Because we already stand under the end. The resurrection of Jesus is called in the New Testament the first fruits of the harvest. That means that the final harvest where you are raised from the dust is already in motion. Right? When you go and reap the first fruits of the harvest, that means the whole harvest time is at hand. So the coming of Jesus is always near. Even if it took 57 billion years of linear historical time, it would not matter. There are many um, critics of the New Testament here who say the early church was mistaken. They expected Jesus to come soon in their lifetimes, and he hasn't come. That's because they don't understand theologically what's happening here. It doesn't matter if it takes hundreds of billions of years. He is, the end is always at hand. Since the appearing of Jesus is the bringing of the everlasting kingdom. So what we really have in Jesus' appearing is two poles. The first and second coming are two poles of one event, not two separate events. That's why he says, after The new heavens and earth have descended. After the final judgment, he says to the churches in Asia Minor, Behold, I'm coming soon. Now this will reorient your thinking and your life if one grasps it. 
So next, the Lord pronounces the sixth of seven benedictions in the book. There are seven benedictions. We get the sixth and seventh here. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of the book. Again, this is an echo of the great opening of the book. Back to chapter 1, verse 3, which says this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it, for the time is near. So here in the epilogue, there's this stress on keeping the words of the prophecy, which again reminds us that the book is not a plaything. It's really not intended for fanciful speculation. It's a practical book. And John keeps saying to the churches, now keep the things that are in it. The book's intended to kind of wake us up and evoke obedience. Blessed are you then. There's a benediction pronounced on you if you go back and you read and you hear, but especially if you keep the words of this book, which entails, at least at this point, cleaving to Christ the faithful witness and cleaving to his word. And so the second exhortation here is in verse 8. John's the one who saw and heard these things. What he's, what he's really saying is the basis of the legal testimony is my firsthand witness. Right, John didn't, is, did not get this stuff secondhand. And then he curiously, again, commits the same error that he was already rebuked for a few chapters ago. Perhaps he's mistaking the angel for Christ. He falls down to worship the angel, and the angel rebukes him and says, don't do it. Instead, John and the church are to worship God. So among other things, Revelation is also a sustained attack, a warning against idolatry. It's a polemic against idolatry, the whole book. Remember, the book starts with this vision of the transfigured, really terrible in the sense of glorious and awesome, Christ. And the central action of the whole book flows from chapters 4 and 5, that throne worship scene. And it ends in this everlasting worship in the new temple, the new garden, the new city. You know, another thing that we would be greatly impoverished by without the book of Revelation is our conception of worship. This book has had an immense impact in the history of the church. I think it's safe to say it has had the most impact in the history of the church on the church's liturgy and worship. There's no other book in the New Testament that comes close to having shaped the historic Christian church's approach to worship. Mostly it's done it by the sort of attitude or the spirit or the ethos that the book instills in us. I mean, there's no direct prescription in the book, right? You can't read the book of Revelation and write out an order of worship, per se, or an order of service. But if you read the scene in chapter 4 and 5, one thing is for certain. It cannot underwrite the rage of our time, which is glib, casual, user-friendly worship of a cozy God. Moderns simply don't understand why the ancient church worshipped the way it did. 
They come into traditional worship services. They think it's just dead and it's just strange and it's just weird. It reminds me of Chesterton's great story, which is you shouldn't tear down a statue until you figure out why somebody put it there. There's a reason the ancient Christian communions worship the way they do. And a large part of that reason is this book. It forms us to a certain kind of reverence and a certain kind of order and a certain kind of communion with the angels and the saints in heaven. And thus we must do things that are fitting and accord with that in worship. It's antiphonal worship. It's repetitive worship. It's corporate worship of the glorious Christ. And so if you don't have this book, you end up using either the latest cultural fads or a text here or a text there from somewhere else to fashion worship. This book has had an indispensable impact on the way churches worship. And the third exhortation begins in verse 10. Don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. There's a contrast here with Daniel. Daniel was told to seal his words up because the stuff Daniel was looking at was far in the future. But by contrast, John is to write and to send his vision abroad. The people of Daniel's time had no idea what he was talking about, in all likelihood. But John, the churches he writes to, can and they must understand this book. Because the events are near. And so he says, this is a strange-sounding text, I would suggest. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. The events of the end, the appearing of Jesus, the setting in motion of these events often makes the division between wickedness and righteousness sharp and irreversible. Remember the whole array of trumpet and bowl judgments in this book that we saw did not induce repentance. Right? There, you can remember this all the way back to chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and 9. These judgments are poured out on the earth and John says, nevertheless, they did not repent. Much like the Egyptian plagues, often these things harden people. Right? So this... This same sort of dividing function is also a part of the work of the prophecy of this unsealed book. Remember, it's easy to forget this, I think. Jesus himself said, do not think I came to bring peace. I came to bring division. I came to bring a division within a man's own household. I came to set mothers against daughters-in-law. And so forth. Now Jesus does bring unity. But he does it first by bringing division. Unity is a wonderful thing. But unity has to come by means of atonement. And reconciliation. That means division comes first. I don't expect we'll have any national solidarity days in division soon. Any public celebrations of division. We always have public celebrations of unity, which are a fine thing. But it's important to remember that genuine unity can only come through the division that Jesus brings 
and then establishes by means of death and resurrection. So, the culminating parts of the prophecy of this book are in verse 12. Jesus himself speaks here. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. I will give to everyone according to what he has done. He's drawing on Isaiah 40, and he's clearly speaking of his final coming. And he reminds us that there's a judgment, which will be according to works. Again, this is a reminder. Only those who keep the words of the book will stand in the coming day. So the fourth exhortation is in verse 13, or at least begins there. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We've seen these titles before. Here they're all together. So here's yet another remarkable feature of the book of Revelation. It's high vision of Jesus Christ's dignity and his person, or what scholars call its high Christology. It is unlikely that there is any higher vision of the glory of Christ than there is in the book of Revelation. It's astonishing that we stay away from a book that has the highest, most magnificent unveiling of the splendor of Christ. It's a book which shows that Jesus is eternal, these titles mean. He's the eternal one, outside, above, and over time. He's divine. He shares the names and the titles and the throne and the universal sovereignty of Yahweh over all things. He's the source and the goal of all things. He's all in all. First and last, beginning and end, Alpha and Omega. The book is a Christ-saturated book, and because it's Christ-saturated, it's God-saturated. Theocentric, because it's centered on Christ. Christocentric. And again, because he is who he is, Alpha and Omega, first and last, then the accomplishment of the vision is certain. So, it's almost as if John is saying at the end of the book something like this, especially to us moderns. I know the book has been a great tribulation for some to get through. That's understandable and normal. And I know our temptation will be to walk out of here and go back to life in the non-apocalyptic world. <laughs> and, we, and that's also normal. It has to be done. But John is trying to say, look, the stuff in the book is real, and I am assuring you with every weapon in my literary arsenal that this stuff is going to come to pass, has come to pass, shall come to pass, and shall come to pass again. Don't forget it. Keep the words of the book. And so you get this seventh. And final benediction. This one's really an exhortation. It comes in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Right? Life has a way of defiling us. Our consciences need to be constantly cleansed and renewed and formed. And so John says to the churches, wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb. Continue to go back. That is the key to blessedness. It's not about your performance. It's about having your robes washed. And then he says, you'll have the right or the authority to the tree of life. That tree was previously guarded. We saw this after the fall. Now, you have access to it as promised in chapter 2 to all the overcomers. 
And, and access to the tree of life is the same thing the text says as entrance to the city gates. Verse 15, there's a warning. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts and the like. Again, this is a text to us. This text is about false professors in the church. Dogs is used by Paul of Judaizers in the church. Peter uses the term dogs of Christians who abandon the faith and return like dogs to their vomit. The list is summarized. I'm not going to go through everything in this list, but it's summarized by those who love and practice falsehood. Again, this is what it means to, to not bear false witness, to be in this list. So there's another fifth exhortation in verse 16. Jesus sent his angel to give you this testimony for the churches. Again, just a reminder that the book is legal testimony. And he repeats identifications of himself here. He's the first or the root and the descendant of David. As we saw in the gospel lesson this morning, he's David's son. He descends from David. And he's David's Lord. He precedes David. It was as the lion of the tribe of Judah, way back in chapter 5, he was the one who conquered. He was the one who was worthy to open the seven-sealed book. He's the bright and morning star. This is John's magnificent echoing of text. This is an allusion to Balaam. There were some in the in these churches that were following the teaching of Balaam. But Balaam in Numbers 24 did see the Messiah as a king who rises like a bright and morning star. And so John sees that here and calls Christ the bright and morning star. So, there are exhortations here in this sixth exhortation. They begin proper in verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. These two exhortations are best taken as addressed to Christ. So imagine the scene. The whole church conceived corporately as the bride. You, the bride in whom the Spirit dwells, calls out in bridal longing for the coming of the divine husband and the divine bridegroom and Lord. And the exhortation then goes out to the rest of humanity. While there's still time, let the one who is thirsty come. And the one who desires take the water of life without price. This is the same water we saw last week, which flows down the center of the city from the throne of God and the Lamb. There's a final exhortation, a warning that begins in verse 18. This is often misunderstood. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in the book. If anyone takes away, God will take away his share in the tree of life. This text here is not about um, scribes adding to the word or subtracting from the text. Nor is it primarily about getting the boundaries of the canon of scripture right and not adding other books. It's drawing directly on language from the book of Deuteronomy. There, on the cusp of entering the promised land, Israel is warned by Moses not to add to or take away from the word of God the law of God that Moses had given in the Torah. And in that context, it's a warning against idolatry and compromise when you enter the land. 
To add to or to take away meant essentially to disobey. To fail either by omission or commission to keep the law. I mean, after all, other books of the Bible were added after Moses wrote that, right? Moses wrote these exact words in the book of Deuteronomy, and the later Israelites added a whole pile of books to the, to the Old Testament. So again, to add or take away meant essentially to disobey, to fail to keep either by omission or commission. And to do so, Moses said, would bring the plagues of the covenant on Israel and result in their eviction from the land. This text functions in the same manner. In this sense, Revelation is a new book of Deuteronomy. It's addressed for the church as she's poised to enter the heavenly city. So it's very clear what John means here. Both adding and taking away, both of them refer to idolatrous compromise with false teaching. In contrast to heeding the words of the book. So John is saying, don't adhere to the teachings of Balaam or Jezebel or the Nicolaitans. Don't compromise with the beast. Right? Teachings like that, they add to the word of God. Right? They, are, they argue that idolatrous fornication with the beast is compatible with the Christian faith. That's how modern churches add to the word of God. Oh, that's perfectly compatible with Christianity. That's what ancient churches did. At the same time, they subtract from the Word of God because they attack its sufficiency, its completeness. Right? They undermine its integrity. So this is a sober warning, and it's given with this kind of uh, biting irony, which John uses quite a bit. He says, if you add, God adds the plagues to you. If you take away, God takes away your share in the city. Now notice this. The judgments are identical in their result. Right? Either God adds, adding the plagues to you is the same as having your right to the city revoked. That indicates, again, that adding and subtracting are identical here. So it's very simple. What does this warning mean? It means this. Keep the words of the book. Don't adulterate them. Don't mix them with false teaching. Verse 20. He who, yet again, testifies, there it is again, testifies to these things. Yes, surely I'm coming soon. So again, the Lord's words, which are our hope, is a living hope that's intended to sort of kindle in the church a desire for his appearing. Right? The church adds its amen here. And it's ancient eschatological prayer. You can find this prayer in Aramaic in 1 Corinthians 16. Come, Lord Jesus. Perhaps one of the most ancient liturgical prayers of the church. That cry is what the book of Revelation seeks to instill in our hearts. Because it's the cry or the desire which orders and shapes and proportions and provides light and perspective on all other cries and desires. But it, but it is also because of the busyness of our lives, because of the way we are made, a cry, a cry which drops out of sight. And then we just end up with a bundle of cries and desires. This cry is the central one which shapes and corrects and transforms all the other cries. 
So finally here, there's a benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. The book opens this way, and it closes this way. And remember, you know what a benediction at the end of this text does? It reminds us, oh, this is a letter to actual churches on the ground. Again, it's not an apocalyptic treatise for speculation. It's a letter. It ends with a benediction. And here these words carry the freight of the whole book. The grace of the risen, transfigured Lord, who walks among the lampstands, the churches, must be with us. And as such, we're to understand and to hear and to do and to keep and to worship and to endure and to continually cry in the Spirit, Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.